like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Acts, if you would. Acts chapter 9 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to read from verses 32 to 43. Acts 9, verse 32 to 43. If you're looking for the book of Acts, it's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. If you're in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, turn left. If you're in Isaiah, turn right. And you'll come to Acts chapter 9, verse 32. And I hope you'll follow along in your copy of the Bible as I read from mine. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed, and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. We have been working for several months through the book of Acts. We're tracing the steps of the early church. We want to find out the values, the characters, the uh, uh, people, the mission that shaped these early believers because... This is our story, too. These are the original roots of our own congregation. And as I've mentioned, uh, this book we have been tracing, the outline of it is given by the Lord Jesus in a command. It's not really a command, but a statement that Jesus makes in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Maybe you're getting a little tired of me hearing, uh, quoting that verse. But we've really seen how it's, it's laid out before us, especially in recent weeks, because in Acts 1 through 7, you have the story of the church in Jerusalem and Judea. Then in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to Samaria and takes the gospel there. And now we are just ready, in fact, it's coming in chapter 10, we're just ready to see the gospel move from the Jews and the Samaritans to the Gentiles. We have a messenger for the Gentiles. God's got a man who's ready. His name is Saul. We read about his conversion last time. But there's there's one more step that we have to take before we can cross this massive border into Gentile territory with the gospel. 
And the passage that we read this morning, that I just read in Acts 9, is a transitional passage. It's a passage that's meant to reintroduce us to the Apostle Peter. He's been gone a little bit, but we're going to see him again. And Luke reintroduces him because he's the one who's going to open the gates of the gospel for the Gentiles. He is the chief border crosser in the book of Acts. Now, it's hard to overestimate how significant a transition this is in the book of Acts. It it happened 2,000 years ago. Most of us are Gentile followers of Jesus. But this is a move that was going to turn the Jewish identity of these followers of Jesus upside down. They had been, for 2,000 years, told not to intermarry with Gentiles, not to eat with Gentiles, certainly not to worship with Gentiles. And here, God is going to push them to embrace Gentiles as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to overturn everything they think they know about what it means to be faithfully, uh, rightly related to God. The gospel does this to everyone. It transforms, it unravels your identity. That's what Jesus does. Whether your identity is of a good Baptist kid who always obeys his parents, or if your identity is a narcissistic, dope-smoking adult who's chronically unemployed. Jesus unravels your identity. That's what he does. And the question that Luke wants to ask here as we turn to Acts chapter 10 is, who is qualified? Who can possibly open the door for the Gentiles? Who has the gravitas to lead the church through such a change? Saul has the intellectual chops and the communication skills, but Saul doesn't have the history with Jesus that the disciples did. So so Saul doesn't have the gravitas with the early followers of Jesus that Peter does. So here we introduce Peter again. Maybe you can think about it this way. A couple of weeks ago, Pope Francis did an annual address to the Curia, the bureaucracy in the Vatican, and he excoriated them. He gave them a shellacking. He told them that the Curia was soaked in gossip and greed and the hunger for power. Now, who can do that? Only a pope who, when he lived in Argentina, used to take public transportation. Only a pope who refuses to wear the red velvet papal slippers and doesn't live in the lavish papal apartments. You've got to have some gravitas to do that. Or uh, perhaps you could think, uh, I was listening uh, to a political show not too long ago, and they were talking about immigration reform. Who in Congress would have the chops, would have the authority, the moral authority to present a real immigration reform bill? And the theory of those, these commentators was that it would need to be a white Republican senator from the South. They didn't think anybody else would be able to do it. Or you could maybe think about this. Uh, does President Obama have the political gravitas and influence to really open up Cuba like Nixon opened China? Time will tell. Who can separate the border separating Jews from Gentiles? Well, here we go right now, Peter. 
and, and he reintroduces Peter with these two miracle stories. We've seen miracle stories before. We know Peter can do miracles. But again, this passage is about showing us what sort of man Peter is. This morning, I want to read this passage with an eye toward one of the events that's happening right now in our church. This is the month of the year when the congregation nominates men to serve as elders. And I want to unfold this passage by showing you the overlap between how Peter is qualified, his resume here, and what should be true of the men that we appoint as elders. Now, I do this with fear and trembling. Here's why. First of all, you should know uh, this is overlap here that I'm talking about, not complete identification. As far as I know, none of the men who are qualified to be nominated as elders have ever raised the dead. If you have, come talk to me. All right, that would be good. Um, there's, this passage actually, part of it is to show Peter is unique as an apostle. Only Peter could do this because of who Peter is. So there, there's elements of this passage that emphasize his uniqueness, yet there is some overlap. So that's what I want to get after. Where's the overlap between the men that we would appoint to be elders in our church and Peter here in this passage? My second fear as I, as I read this passage is I don't want to discourage the men who are currently serving as elders or anyone who might be considering it. There's no place in the Bible where the scripture requires that an elder be perfect. There's Peter being a perfect man. Well, you know, you read the rest of the Bible, Peter is not a perfect man. Here he's, he's, he, he's ideal. I'm about to describe what should be true of me and the men who will serve as elders in our church. And I'm aware, even as I read this, of how, fall, how far I fall short of this. It, if, I, if I set this standard at a certain height, we're going to come to a moment in the service where it's time for the elders to come down to serve the elements, and they will have left, like Elvis, the building. Uh, so the goal of the New Testament when appointing elders is... is To find men who embody these qualities, not men who live them out perfectly. We appoint the men that God brings to the congregation to serve as elders in our church, uh, and and they are in pursuit of this. They're they're setting a, a pace in our congregation to meet these standards that the New Testament lays down. Not perfection, but evident progress in these things. Now, having said that here, where is the overlap? It's a question that I want to ask. Where's the overlap between what Luke says about Peter and the elders that we appoint to serve? Three things. I'm going to phrase them in a a prayer sentence here. Number one, God grant us men who are faithful servants. Faithful servants. Luke describes Peter here very carefully doing what what God has called him to do. The passage begins, Peter's on a ministry tour. It's safe for him to leave Jerusalem, and he's going to Lydda, a town about 25 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. He's going there, and he's finding believers, and he's encouraging them. He's praying for them. He's visiting with them. He is actively doing what God has called him to do. And when an opportunity comes to pray for a paralyzed man, he does. Or to go pray for a sick woman, a dead woman. She's more than sick. She's dead. He goes. Um, Even if it's a 10-mile trip up the road to Joppa, he he goes. Actually, there are two faithful servants in this passage, aren't there? There's uh, the second one here is named Tabitha. In Aramaic uh, or in Greek, the text says it's Dorcas. (laughs) 
she was alive today, she'd opt for the Aramaic pronunciation of her name. Um, Tabitha means gazelle. It's a a loving uh, song of songs. In the Song of Solomon, uh, Solomon says of his bride, she's lovely like a gazelle. And and, uh, Tabitha's parents named her this gazelle, this lovely lady. And the text says that she was always doing good and helping the poor. Literally, it says she was involved in almsgiving. We're talking here about a a wealthy woman who used the resources she had to help others. She's a faithful servant. Peter's a faithful servant. She's a faithful servant. Um, We're talking today, I'm choosing to cast this story as we think about elders in our congregation, but the church needs women like this too, faithful women who are serving. Uh, We have people like this in our church. Now, Peter is faithful at his work, and he's ready to do what God has asked him to do. He's ready to go in chapter 10. And here's one way that the Bible tells us, I think, to, to choose elders, to find elders. Choose men who are already doing the work, who are already engaged in faithful service, who are doing the work of elders, whether they have the title or not. Uh, during the semesters that I teach at Lancaster Bible College, I require the students to memorize passages of Scripture, extended passages of Scripture, chapters. And they uh, meet with me, uh, this requirement, they have to sit down and meet with me sometime in the cafeteria to quote their verses. They think they're coming to fulfill assignments. They're actually coming for me to ask them about themselves. So I talk to them about where they're from and why they're at LBC and what they want to accomplish in life. It's the pastoral work of my professorship. Well, one day I was sitting across from a young man, and he said to me, uh, he sat down and he was discouraged. Why are you discouraged? Well, I applied for an internship at, at a, a church near us uh, to be, uh, an in, do an internship as a children's pastor at the church, and I didn't get the internship. On the one hand, I was surprised. He's a freshman. This is his first semester at LBC, and he's applying for an internship. Freshmen don't know nothing, so I couldn't believe he had applied for this internship, but So I wanted to encourage him. So I said to him, well, uh, tell me about the ministry experience that you have at your church, what you do with working with children at your church. And he said, well, I don't really go to church. And I said, well, tell me, why do you want to do children's ministry? He said, well, I haven't really done anything actually, but I have a couple of nephews and I really like to hang out with them and have fun with them. So I thought children's ministry would be a good place for me to serve. Now, I'm not a genius, but I'm beginning to get an idea of why he did not get the internship. <laughs> uh, we talked about that a little bit, and I handed him an invitation to our congregation. Um, the eldership is not a task that you enter into on a theoretical basis. You don't appoint someone to serve as an elder because you hope he will grow into it. Um, you do the work, and then you're appointed to it. That is, you disciple others, you're active in prayer, you lead your family well, you participate in the work of the church, do this, and then be appointed. That's how Ephesians 4, God gives elders to the church, and the church recognizes them and appoints them to the office. This encouragement, I hope this should encourage you. This, some of you should be very encouraged by this, because we have many men in our church with tremendous potential to serve in this office of elder. Paul, you should see this as a worthy goal. Paul says it's, it's right to aspire to be an elder in a church. Well, how do you aspire to be an elder in the church? You do the work. 
demonstrate that you yourself are a faithful servant. Now, number two, God grant us men who are dependent on Jesus Christ. God grant us men who are dependent on Jesus Christ. I want to think about these stories for just a few minutes as miracle stories. Now, Peter here, he's different in this regard because of these miracles that he does. But we also see how Christ-centered that he is. When he encounters Aeneas in verse 33, Luke is very clear. It's not Peter who heals him. In fact, Peter doesn't say anything about what he does. Peter doesn't do, do anything. All he does is declare, Jesus Christ heals you. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't pray over him. He doesn't, doesn't anoint him. He doesn't smack him in the head. Jesus Christ heals you. And Aeneas gets up, tells him what Jesus has done. Then in in verse 40, when he encounters uh, Tabitha, he's equally Christ-centered. He gets down on his knees. Oh, Lord. It doesn't say what he prayed. Oh, Lord, raise this woman. I, I don't know. But, but he's evidently dependent on Christ's work. What the church needs is confident men. But men who are confident not in their own competence, but their belief in Christ's competence. Men who know that because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, they know that they're on the winning side. That even in the midst of setbacks and discouragements and mistakes, we're on Jesus' side and we're going to win. We can move into this situation because of who he is. I have uh, uh, usually, when I'm driving around Lancaster, listen to books on CD. And uh, occasionally uh, we listen uh, with the children, we listen to a, a character created by the novelist. His name is Clive Cussler. Clive Cussler is the novelist, and he has a character whose name is Juan Cabrillo. We listen to these adventure stories. They're not comedies, but we listen to them and laugh. We listen to them and laugh because, on the one hand, my children have nicknamed Juan Cabrillo. They call him One Burrito. And whenever uh, One Burrito, whenever we listen to a story featuring One Burrito, the reason we laugh about these is because everybody in these stories that Clive Cussler creates, they're all... Um, young, good-looking, and the best at what they do. And Clive Cussler, he, I don't know how he writes this without laughing, but he describes this, you know, this woman that they discover in a rock cave somewhere, and she's the world's best Egyptologist, and she walks out of the cave looking like she just stepped off the runway of a fashion show in Milan. She's young, gorgeous, and the best Egyptologist in the world. Johnny will tell you that's true. They're all, that's the way they, all Egyptologists are. No, he says they're old craggy men. It's what they are. Uh, they're all, everybody in the book is young, good looking, and they're the best shots, the best pilots, the best archaeologists, the best engineers, everybody, if that's the way they are. And what makes these novels, I think, attractive to people, and uh, Cutzer sold millions of them, is that these characters, they're, they're just confident. They enter every situation knowing that they can win, that they can outrun and outshoot and outfight and outsmart their opponent every time. We need elders who are confident not in themselves, but in Christ. Now this passage makes us ask a question that we've dealt with before. We should think about it again. 
here, uh, there's two miracles in this story. Both of them lead to conversions, significant conversions. A lot of people hear about what Peter did and they turn to Christ. Now, why doesn't that happen in evangelism today? Well, there's some people who say it does and that it should. They practice what's sometimes called power evangelism. They do healing and then preach the gospel. Uh, I wonder, though, about that. Eckhard Schnabel, Schnabel, who wrote a a great commentary in the book of Acts, um, said that it's interesting in in Acts chapter 9, when Peter wants to heal Tabitha, he sends everybody out of the room. If Peter were a faith healer of today, he would move Tabitha into a stadium and, and fill it and put cameras everywhere while he prayed for her. There's quite a bit of difference, isn't there? Then he'd take an offering. Now, the the key lesson, I think, that's in these miracle stories is not the relationship between the miracles and evangelism. The, The thing that ties them all together is Jesus' power. It is Jesus' power that heals Aeneas and raises Dorcas from the dead, and it is Jesus' power that, that changes the hearts and minds and, of these men and women in these towns, and they turn to Jesus. It's, it's about Jesus' power. There is no, in the Bible, automatic connection between miracles and conversions. In Acts chapter 14, Paul does miracles, and few, if anybody, believe. In Acts 13, Paul doesn't do any miracles, and many people believe. What connects miracles and conversion is that they both point to the power of Jesus. That should help us, I think. It should help us when we think, maybe when we have these wistful desires, oh, if God would just work like this again, if he would just do this again, then people would be converted. There'd be revival if God would just heal people like this. You ever ever think that way, have that wistful desire? Sometimes that can come from a confusion about what is the power behind conversion. When someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, it is because Jesus is at work in him, not because of the power of the preacher who preaches about Jesus. Uh, now, that needs some clarification, but let, let's, let me just give you one more illustration. The best, perhaps the greatest preacher ever in the English-speaking world was Charles Spurgeon. You know about him. I'm sure you've heard of him. Charles Spurgeon used to preach to thousands of people. Um, and uh, he was a golden-tongued orator, and thousands of people became followers of Jesus Christ through his eloquence. John Piper was talking about Charles Spurgeon a few years ago, and he said, you don't read Charles Spurgeon in order to become Charles Spurgeon because you can't become like Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is one and only, a one and only creature of God in the work that he did. Well, um, Spurgeon himself was converted on a cold, snowy day. He told this story dozens of times, and he would preach. One day he was walking to church. He was not a follower of Jesus, but he was going to church, and the snow was so bad, the storm was so bad, that he turned to the side and found an old Methodist chapel, and he went in there and sat down. He was one of just a handful of people in the church. In fact, the, the storm was so bad that the, that the preacher himself couldn't make it, so there was an old um, deacon who took his Bible and he went up to the pulpit when the service was to begin and he read one verse from the Old Testament, which was, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He repeated that verse 14 times and then for 10 minutes 
grabbed every phrase he possibly could out of it. It may have been the world's worst sermon. It wasn't eloquent. It wasn't insightful, except at one point in time, the preacher saw Spurgeon in the congregation. He said, young man, you look miserable. Let me encourage you to look unto me and be ye saved. That was the moment when Charles Spurgeon became a follower of Jesus Christ. The most eloquent man perhaps the grace of pulpit in the world was converted by the worst delivered sermon ever because some people turned to Jesus not because of some technique used in the pulpit or not because of some great evidence that they see, but because of Jesus' power. You should be nervous. You should be nervous when someone says, that they have a new product or a new technique or a new church design or a new music style or a new preaching style that's finally going to convert people. This is, gonna, this is actually going to be the way, this is actually going to be the tool that God's going to use to change them. This tool is that effective. Now, I know that Jesus uses means, and, and, and our goal isn't to be boring on purpose or have terrible music on purpose, or we don't, we, don't have, we don't work hard. It seems like we don't work hard to make the pews as firm as possible, to make people uncomfortable so that we can just see Jesus at work. That's not the goal. Uh, but we recognize that if someone turns to Christ, it is because of Jesus' power. Will you pray with me, brothers and sisters, that Jesus' power would be unleashed in your family, in, your, in our church, in your neighborhood, that people would turn to him? It, it's, God uses means, I know that. But you're not dependent on some special presentation or some special technique. It's, it's Christ's power that changes people's lives. In a few minutes, we're going, to, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. This is a sign, this is a public testimony of the first moment of dependence on Jesus. You become a Christian by recognizing that Jesus is the Savior you need to trust. God made us all to walk with him in obedience and glad communion, but each of us have, have sinned. We've turned from him, and the world bears 10,000, 10 million marks of our alienation from God, an alienation that's going to end in bitterness and darkness, suffering as we bear God's wrath. But Jesus came and bore God's wrath for us. And he gives life and he gives forgiveness to all who receive it by faith. That's dependence. The conscious act of dependence on him. It's how you become a Christian. The men most qualified to serve are the men most dependent on him, confident in him. Now, how can you tell if you, or how can you tell if someone that you know is actually depending on Christ? There's probably a number of reasons, a number of ways. I'll just mention one. You can tell by how they respond to suffering. What comes out when their life doesn't go the way they want it to go? What do they do? Where do they turn to? What do they do when they don't know what to do? If you take a dry sponge, you know how sponges can get dry and crusty? Kind of like that powdery look and so hard. If you dip it in water, just dip it in water and pull it out and squeeze it, not much will come out. Maybe a little bit of water will come not much, but if you take that same sponge and you plunge it into the water, 
You push it down and let, you, let it soak for a little bit and then pull it up and you squeeze it. Oh, the water will just pour out of that sponge. What happens to someone when life presses down on them and squeezes them? What comes out? You will see what they're dependent upon in those moments. Now, finally here, number three, God grant us men who imitate Jesus, who imitate Jesus. These two miracle stories, they're they're surprisingly similar to the things that Jesus has done. In in Mark chapter 2, do you remember he met a man who was paralyzed, and he told told him, pick up your mat and carry it home. Jesus did the same thing. Now, in Peter, uh, in, in Acts, here it says, Jesus Christ, verse 34, heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. I like the Lexham English translation. (laughs) It says, the Lexham translation, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed yourself. I like that translation. It's going to be the theme verse in our home in a few years. (laughs) Get up and make your bed yourself. Thus says the Lord. Then this healing of, of, of Tabitha, doesn't it sound like that time that Jesus went into that home where there was a dead body except it was a little girl and, and he spoke to her? Now, I, the commentators vary about how much of a difference you should make about this, but Peter says to her, Tabitha, get up. If he was speaking Aramaic, well, do you remember in, in the Jairus story, uh, Jesus, uh, the, the Gospels quote Aramaic? And, and Jesus speaks Aramaic, and what does he say? He speaks to this little girl, and he calls her honey child, except he does it in Aramaic. He says, Talitha kum. Peter comes to this old woman, and her name is Tabitha, and he says, Tabitha kum. There's one letter difference in Aramaic. Jesus, it, it seems like Peter here is quoting Jesus. Peter is doing what Jesus did in dependence on him for his glory like him. This is the end of our salvation, isn't it? Romans 8, we're called, justified, sanctified, glorified. Why? So that we will be like Jesus. And and men who are qualified to serve as elders in our church leave the aroma of Christ in how they interact with people. Oh, what a standard this text sets for us. Uh, when I was in seminary, I, I took a class with a man by the name of Donald Geiger, and he, it was called Multimedia Ministry. It was on the cutting edge of the mid-90s. We worked with slides, real slides with film and overhead projectors. There was this new thing coming out called PowerPoint that we dabbled in a little bit, but it was so new that most churches wouldn't have anything to do with PowerPoint, so we didn't spend much time on it. Except one time in class when Don Geiger gave us a presentation that he had made for his church and it told the story of the adoption that he and his wife had, had gone through. Don Geiger and his wife had raised three children. They were in their teens and they began to read the Bible and think and, and, and God placed it upon them or impressed them with the needs of orphans around the world. This was before the great evangelical awakening of um, orphan care. And they went to China and they adopted from this adoption a little girl and brought her home into their life. And they loved this child. And, and, and in these PowerPoint presentations saw all these pictures of this, this baby girl and how she grew up in this home and how she interacted with her older brothers and sisters. It was a group, we were, it was a group of tough seminary men. We were weeping 
during his presentation. Well, after they'd had this little girl for a short period of time, maybe a year, Don Geiger and his wife, they began talking to each other, and they said, you know, there were so many girls in that orphanage who needed homes. Maybe we can go and adopt another one. So they explored the possibility. They were told by authorities that uh, they were too old and they already had a girl, so they, they couldn't adopt again unless they were willing to take some, a little girl with a disability because little girls under those circumstances, they're hard to adopt. And the Geiger said, sure, we'll be glad to. So they again went to the orphanage and they were assigned a girl. And the orphanage director said, you can have this little girl. She's deaf. She, she can't hear anything. All right. We'll take her. <laughs> they discovered in the process of the adoption that the little girl was not deaf. It's just that the orphanage director was so mean, she never listened to her. Never did anything in response to her. So they took this girl home, and in the first few pictures, now, she and her adopted sister were the same age, but what's startling is in the first pictures of them together, you see they're about this different in height. One girl lived in a Chinese orphanage with an orphanage director who was so mean that she wouldn't even listen to her. One girl had spent the last year living in a family home in Dallas, Texas, with three older siblings who loved her, cared for her, and parents who fed her good, nutritious food. Now, as, as the pictures went on in the PowerPoint presentation, you see the girls continue to grow, but the younger girl, she, she catches up to her older sister until they're the same height. That's what happens in a home where there's nourishment and care and love. It's what happens in a congregation with people who are committed to be like Jesus. They grow to be like their older brother, and they call other people to grow and be like him too. God grant us men who imitate Jesus. It's what God does. It's what the church produces. This is a transitional passage, as I mentioned here. It reintroduces Peter so that when we get to chapter 10, Lord willing, next week, and God uses him to preach to Gentiles, we say, oh, this is definitely God's work because there's nobody more qualified than Peter. Surely this must be God working through him because God works through Peter. There's a debate among historians I, I'm not very embedded in it. I, I don't know very much about it, but it's, it started a few years ago, uh, 10 or 12 years ago, by John Sullivan in a book that he, he wrote about who was responsible for bringing the Berlin Wall down? Who, who actually led to that revolution in the world? Well, his book, it was called The Pope, the Prime Minister, and the President. And he credited Margaret Thatcher... John Paul II, and Ronald Reagan with bringing the wall down. In contrast to that, some historians have argued that it really wasn't them. It was actually Mikhail Gorbachev who opened the wall. Some people would rather laud the communists than give any credit to a Republican. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But it just seems a mark of God's kindness in his time. He brings these people, four of them, to prominence changes the world here's a mark of god's kindness he brings peter back into our vision and we see how he's going to change the world and in his kindness god grants us elders too, to shepherd our congregation change the lives of men and women in our community
God, grant us these men. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this, these stories, these simple stories that, that do so much as, as the narrative of the story of Acts, your work unfolds. Help us to remember your great power. And Lord, we do pray that you would grant us these type of men who, who are imitating Jesus and who are depending on him and who are faithfully engaged. We give you thanks for your great kindness to us that we get to be a part of this body of believers. And we believe you, Lord Jesus, in your word that it says you will prevail your church because you are building it. Build us, O Lord, with the, the men and women that we need to faithfully serve in our church and elders who will faithfully lead and shepherd this flock. You are good to us, and we are humbled to be your servants, called to your work. Mercy, mercy, we pray, and we give you thanks for these things in Jesus' name.